You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Octavio Solis, welcome to Token Theater Friends. It's such a pleasure having you here today. Uh, just to get started, can you talk a little bit about what Scenes with Cranes is all about? It's about, um, it. The, the themes revolve around grief and, and rage that comes from loss. Um, it's it's about, a, the, the story uh, revolves around a, a mother who's just lost her son to a traffic accident that um that nobody seems to have seen but but everyone says it it's an accident uh and she starts to wonder whether it is an accident and so so she does her own detective work in her own home because she thinks it it might not it might have been a deliberate uh strike at her son but it's really about how she can't cry she's in trauma she's in shock and uh and she wants to understand her own grief um and uh, and she can't let go of her son um, until she knows the truth. Until he's ready to she's ready to let him go. So he's there. Um, he, he appears, and uh, she's he's by her side all the time, and uh, and she guides him through some some scenes in the past that she was not privy to. She's he's he's she is the only one who can see him. Her name is Lourdes Bayan, and uh, Nico is is her is her son. But uh, but she's uh, she's trying to deal in, uh, with her own sense of loss, with her grief, uh, and 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 I I wrote this really before uh, in 2019 before the pandemic, but it feels like it's it's coded with everything that we've gone through with the pandemic, with George Floyd, uh, with all the loss we've we've endured. Uh, the people we've lost, uh, the years, the time we have lost, uh, locked away in our homes, uh, and uh, and the kind of sadness that I think it's going to take a while for us to get over. Uh, so it has that uh, on it. Uh, it's called "Scene with Cranes" because that's the title of the music piece that inspired it. I was uh, I was listening to Jean Sibelius' piece called "Scene with Cranes" that he wrote for a play uh, back in 1902. A play called Death, which was written by uh, his brother-in-law, and um, <clears throat> and uh, and later he just moved, so you know, took the piece and used it, refashioned it so it would be uh, a standalone piece. Um, he took the music from that and made a, a, a waltz, and then and then this this beautiful piece that I, that I just found so full of that loss and yearning. Uh, it's only later that I learned that. That the crane itself is a is a symbol for for death. It's a harbinger of death, but it's also a symbol for rebirth and and for birth itself. So it has a, a dual meaning, uh, and I I thought that was appropriate for for the work. Um, the piece didn't just inspire the play; it's in the play. It's 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 it plays in its entirety in its six minute entirety at the end of the play, um, and. Uh, becomes pivotal um, for uh, to, to the action. So um, that's where that comes from. Lourdes is a majestically heartbreaking character and I couldn't help but be touched beyond, you know, I wasn't expecting to be as moved 
but just reading it, because obviously I haven't seen a production yet. Um, but she was so powerful. And I, I wonder how does a character like Lourdes manifest to you? Like, how do you come up with someone like that who has so much pain and yet is so, I don't know, so, so human and so overpoweringly human? I, I, I think I've met women uh, like this, very strong, um, powerful uh, women that are aware of their own strength, that are aware of the largeness of their emotions, who are epic in their in their uh, in their in their joy and in their grief, and uh, and I easily I can I can I can see them playing Hecuba or Queen Margaret in Richard the uh, Third, old, older stronger women who are fighting for their children, uh, or fighting for for their for their nation, grieving for their nation. And I, I I saw Lourdes as as something uh, like that, and 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 also it just, um, um, I was I wrote it for Marisa Chivas, and 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 I know that she's an actor of tremendous power, and uh, and so I just it was easy to imagine how Lourdes was manifested in in in, in, in as 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 a character on stage or, or as a character in my writing. Because I had Marisa as 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 a as a template, she was she was the model for it. Um, in fact, I, I I cast the play um, really before I wrote the, before I wrote it. I had I wrote the poem I wrote the play because I I don't like writing outlines. I wrote the play as a, as a kind of poem, really very 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 quickly, uh, and uh, it was maybe twelve pages long or something like that. And 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 uh, and so I saw the characters that I needed, and uh, and then I wrote little monologues for them to audition with when I went to Cal Arts, uh, and they auditioned with these pieces. But I never used any of those pieces; they were just to audition with. Um, and uh, and then when I knew who the people were, when I saw these young people, and I knew Marisa was going to be there, uh, then it was then it was easy for me to visualize the the story uh in its in its full epic dimension um and I, and I then I wrote the play uh, so there's a lot of the personal investment of of the uh, a lot of the personality and the rhythms of of the actors that is also in in the characters because I had them before it really was a wonderful way to to work you know yeah, like you mentioned at the beginning, uh, Lourdes has to do kind of detective work. And reading the play made me almost think that, you know, like I imagined like a whole like uh, pulpy series where Lourdes gets to be a detective. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder, you know, like when you start writing a play and you have a character like this, how do you choose the path that she's going to follow? Like, why can't we have the Lourdes as a detective? Uh, um, I, I think it's because uh, how I choose that path, that's an interesting question because I often don't choose the path, the character chooses the path. The way uh, my, my whole philosophy is around trying to give the characters agency, giving them room to make their own decisions, kind of turning the reins over from me to them 
And then I just write what, what they say and what they do. Uh, even if they take me into blind alleys, uh, dead ends, um, I still, I still uh, trust them that they'll eventually get me to from A to Z in a more interesting way than if I chose that path. I, I, uh, and so I, I, I find myself not working so hard when, once I, once I just uh, let Lourdes and Nico tell the story themselves. They took me through it. Um, I, I, I thought maybe uh, the story was going to be more linear, starting all the way back when before the father had his stroke. Um, but no, it started right at the at his death, at, at Nico's death, and then took me took me through a journey that took us back in time, that took us through some of Nico's fantasies, and then back to another period just three days before. Uh, and, uh, and I, and I said, it's so, uh, it breaks the narrative structure in a way that, that I find refreshing because, uh, because I can get very easily bored, uh, like when I start to predict what's going to happen next. Um, and even so, even when I started to know, oh, this is going to happen next, it would happen in such a unique way that I was, uh, satisfied and, and compelled. Uh, to see, well, what is it? What is it? How is it exactly going to happen? Um, I, so, so I kind of give them the the agency to 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 take me on the journey. Uh, I don't take them on the journey; they take me. How do you let go of them then when you're done, or how do they let go of you when they're done? Like, I wonder if you have any sort of rituals to say goodbye to Nico and Lourdes after you're done writing the play. Oh wow! Uh, wow, that's that's really good because I have rituals for getting into that world, uh, a kind of uh, meditation relaxation process uh, that I learned from Marie, Maria Irene Fornes, who was my model. She was my mentor and my friend. Um, I learned a lot about uh, that process about getting into it. But uh, in my writing exercises, I take a process where I kind of uh follow the uh same process in i follow the same process out so that uh, we all we feel like we entered into the cave and then we come back out the same way or find another and exit the other way uh and and do a, a kind of countdown back to the real world you know where we can wake up and go okay i'm out of the dream i can take a break and go have some coffee um <laughs> But but when you're when I'm writing daily over the whole play and once the play is done, I I, I don't have I haven't done that ritual yet. I don't think I'm gonna do that ritual until opening night, when I really feel like I can celebrate uh, his release. Um, for the first time uh, last night, I went to rehearsal without my computer, without my my satchel, my bag, and my notepad to take notes, um, and. Um, and I felt like I'm done. My work is done. I I let go of the play, and so I was like a kid having fun. I ate a lot of chocolate. Had chocolates there at rehearsal, and I ate a ton of them. And I was like bouncing off the walls. Uh, but I was, but it was because I was excited. I was excited because it was I, it wasn't my play anymore, because it was theirs. It, it belonged to them now. So I felt a kind of release. Like okay, you know, it's. It's uh, Isaiah's turn to kind of tell Nico's story. I'm not doing it anymore. It's it's fully his character, and, and and we've come to the point in the process where they're telling me what they need from me, um, 
uh, and now I feel I'm done. Um, so I feel like part of that letting go process has started. Uh, and it's, uh, and it's very satisfying. Um, I, I don't think it'll be complete until I see the final performance on Saturday night. You know, it, we've been kind of with this play for about three years. Plus, you know, with me by myself, it's been four, but three with, with many of these actors, most of them. Um, and, um, and we're only doing three performances. So it's an event. If they people come, if people don't see it, it's gone. It's, they're going to miss it. Um, so we hope that in those three days that something magical will happen that, that, that will make uh, some make producers say, you know, bring it to my theater. Let's do it next year. I want this production. I want to take this production here. Um, we hope maybe for some international festivals that we can take this play. They're saving the set. They're saving all the costumes. They're saving um, the, the lighting plot. Everything about the production is, is being saved so that we can transport it somewhere else at some point. Unfortunately, at Red Cat, uh, they have uh, it, it, it's a booking. It, it, it's a it's a a, a a touring house where they present projects from all over the world, and they're in there for just that week, and then they got to get out and get another move someone else in. So we can't do an extended run there. We could have, I suppose, at, at Cal Arts, but but uh, but this feels like a like an event to do it here in LA. Knowing this, you know how ephemeral theater is. Why make theater knowing that you can't preserve it and keep it forever? You know, uh, that's a really, really good question. One that I've been grappling with for a while. Um, when the pandemic hit and we shut theaters down three years ago, um, I, I was tired. I had been working on all cylinders, working on almost two premieres at the same time. They were competing against each other. And uh, I was I was just really, really tired. And um, and so when theaters closed down and indefinitely, I, I thought, good, I, I could use a break. I could use six weeks. I'm not doing anything, just sleeping. Um, but then I started getting itchy and still theaters were closed. And then when they said it would be about five years before we get a vaccine, I, I got really depressed i i thought well i'm done i'm in my 60s what am i in five years i might as well do something else i'm done as a playwright um i might as well write poetry or novels or something because how are we going to come back from this um and a lot of theaters have shut down in in that period of time sadly and we have lost a lot of theater artists to covid uh and to other things that are associated with the whole uh environment uh, from uh, depression and anxiety, uh, which I have dealt with. And I also caught COVID and was very, very ill in, in December and January of 2020 and 2021. Uh, and, um, um, but it made me question the, the, the fragility, uh, uh, it made me acknowledge rather the fragility of theater um, and uh, us as theater artists and we did what we could to kind of still keep active. We did Zoom readings. Uh, we're still doing Zoom readings. Uh, it was a way to kind of at least work on our acting chops and work on our theater skills and not completely give up. 
even if we couldn't be in the same room together in the same room, it's still uh, no substitute for a live experience with a live audience in the house. Um, and so when theater came back and audiences started coming back, I, I, I just felt relieved. At the same time, you know, it's still uh, touch and go. If uh, in, in some companies, if the actors get, if one or two actors get sick, the production closes down. Sometimes they don't have understudies. We did. We made sure that we had understudies and they've been involved with the production from the very beginning. They've run their own blocking. They've run their own lines. Um, and, um, and they're ready to open if they have to. They're ready to step in. And in a few a few times when some actors did get sick, not from COVID, but from colds or something, uh, an actor would step in right away and they filled it immediately off book. Uh, it was remarkable to see just how wonderful these uh, these understudies and how prepared they were. Um, but uh, but in some even this year, there's been some productions that have closed early because people got sick or because the director got sick. And some, the director was couldn't even be at their own uh, opening because of COVID, because they caught COVID, um, and it's it's tragic. Uh, and so we're still, you know, we're, I'm still counting down the days. Um, it it I, I keep telling the actors, stay healthy, don't go out, don't go out anywhere. <laughs> Don't see anybody. <laughs> Lock is open your room, <laughs> and then come to us. Uh, and even even in our rehearsal room, we still rehearse with masks on. Um, I'm uh, especially if you're only sitting watching the work, you're required to keep your mask on. Uh, the actors can take them off when they're acting, but we have to. My, my director and I and the stage management team, we have to wear our masks uh, and uh, to protect the production. Uh, and and God help me if I should ever be responsible for my own production closing down. That would be a terrible cross to bear. But that's the kind of world we're in now. You know, um, that's that's uh, it's going to be like that for a little bit, uh, a little bit more, less and less, um, because theater is just a, a little more. Um, frail than uh, say sporting events the, you know they don't close down sporting events anymore at, at all uh, airports you know they're all open everybody gets on a plane and they don't all wear masks anymore not required to anymore but in the theater we're still really nervous about that we don't want anyone getting sick um, um, so we test three times a week with these home kits um, I have my I got my booster and um and I even caught a barely really bad cold and I didn't come near the actors for like five, six days. Um, and, um, but generally we're, we're doing well, we're doing well, but it is such an, uh, isn't it such a, just a delicate form theater, you know, it's been th with us since the beginning of time and yet it's still so delicate. Yeah, I mean, totally. Like the, the the fragility of theater is the fragility of life as well. Yeah. And since you wrote the play before the pandemic, now I'm really curious about what did your characters teach you about grief? Oh gosh. Well, they taught me to forgive, um, to forgive uh, without 
uh, reservation, um, the, the the wrongs that that have um, happened in my life in in my childhood. They they taught me that much. Um, uh, they they taught me that 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 um, it's difficult to grieve alone. You have to do it. It, 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 it's almost like a, like a, like a tree falling in the woods. It's um, you have to share it. Uh, grief is is a community thing. It, it's a community um, event, and um, and when it does happen that way, um, it that that grief is shared. The grief is is a way of of cementing uh, the community around itself. Uh, so. Um, so I, I, I've learned a, a few of, a few things like that from, from my own play. Uh, I wanted to say one more thing. Um, I wanted to say something about the, um, uh, how grief also helps us to, uh, grow. It helps us to grow and, uh, and, and we don't let go of, uh, the, the losses that we have. They don't get smaller. They don't diminish. We just grow around them more, and uh, and I don't mean thicker skin. I don't mean that we have a shell or anything like. That. It's just that they 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 enable us to grow, uh, in spite of in spite of the pain, uh, and be, actually because of the pain we grow, we grow more into more fully rounded uh, humans. That's I think one of the chief lessons that uh, that this plays is teaching me. So we have all heard that when you as a child lose your parents, you're an orphan, and then how there's no word in any language for when a parent loses their child. And seeing with cranes, it's not the first time where you've dealt with the loss of a child and thinking about something like Sayama Cristina, for example, mm -hmm. and I'm not a parent, but you're a parent. And can you talk a little bit about how I can only imagine, or I actually can't imagine what it would be like to lose a child. So I wonder for you as a parent, if putting that horrendous fear and nightmare onto the page makes it a fear that's easier in some way to live with they, you know, on a daily basis. Yeah, I, th I think it does. Um, I, I've said many times that I, I, I can't trust happiness because I'm always wary that some someone's going to pull the rug out from under me. But I'm learning to do to to revel in it more than I used to. Um, and it is because I can channel all my fears, all my night terrors to to the stage, and I can place them there, and I can study them, and I can go through that. Uh, pain and the, the grief and the rage um and the loneliness um of uh of those experiences uh as a as a coping mechanism for for me um yeah i i you know i i i my daughter's a grown adult now and i still fear for her i still fear fear for her every day um but it but it also made me aware that my my mother and my father fear for me <laughs> you know if, if there's an earthquake in LA that they'll call me in Oregon and say are you okay are you all right <laughs> or if there's a fire in in Oregon and we get a lot of them 
they're always concerned about like, how is it? How is it going? Um, but the roles have reversed a little bit. It's my parents who are the children now as, as they're in their 80s. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I find myself being like the parent calling them and asking them how they're doing, how they're coping. It's it, the, the fears transferred over as has reversed itself. And my, the concern anyway, has now shifted so that I'm uh, worried about them um, uh, and, uh, and their health. Um, and, uh, and, and I think my own daughter is doing that with me. She's concerned about me. Uh, um, but that's, you know, that's how it goes. That's, that's how we, that's how we deal with life. Um, yeah. Theater is in, an interesting kind of, uh, beast because it, uh, it kind of prepares us. It prepares us for the loss and the pain to come because it's going to come. Uh, we're, we're all at some point going to die. And I think uh, um, storytelling, story and theater and poetry and the arts are, are, a, are a way to kind of prepare us for the inevitable, um, which can be harrowing, but also beautiful, you know? Yeah, they're also a way to, I mean, not be alive, but also like to become like immortal in some way, you know, like even after you're gone, Octavius Lisa's plays will be produced and will be read. Well, maybe, but you know, um, I, I, I can't count on that. I can't count on that because, <laughs> you know, there's a, a lot of great playwrights that whose names we may never know because, uh, you know, they disappeared in, into a library that burned down a long time ago or, or their works have been erased or lost uh, or they're just slowly slipping into oblivion. Um, all we can hope for is that is that our audiences now will 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 uh, attest to our work to to the the power of our work that audiences will help uh, complete that circle um, that we engage in when we tell our stories on the stage. Um, I, I I don't hold my breath for the future. <laughs> you know? uh, I, I can't. It's 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 too much hubris, you know. Uh, but thank you anyway. That's really, yeah, that's really of course. Great. You're very welcome. There's such beauty and musicality and poetry to the way in which you write, you know, stage directions and mm -hmm. settings. And I, I couldn't help but wonder, you know, having those images live in your mind and then you put them on the page, how, how is it then to see a director and a group of actors and a group of technicians and a group of artists try to conjure these images like do they ever you know i don't know if do, do they have to live up to what you imagine or is there joy and wonder and beauty in seeing how they interpret them as well i i, I don't think they've ever had uh problems with this because the director has really he, he embedded himself deep in the skin of the play uh, he's really protective of his process. He's very protective of, of his interpretation, but he's doing the play. So I can't complain, he, you know, uh, because he's, you know, he's interpreting it. He's giving himself the freedom to interpret it and protect that, that territory. I, I am also director. So I offer my ideas as a director sometimes. And he goes, 
Uh, thank you, Octavio. But uh, let me try this. I'll remember that. We'll try that sometime. But let me let me just finish this. I haven't quite finished it. And then when he finishes the scene, like a day or two later, finishes directing, working out what he wants, I go, oh, that was better than my idea. <laughs> <laughs> or he achieved the same thing that I wanted, but in a different way, a way that he could own and say, that's my directing. It's not Octavio's directing. And it's still Octavio's play. So I, I just found that really, really kind of satisfying. Um, the actors, I mean, they, they, uh, they really found the, their, the rhythms of the characters so well because they were, you know, sometimes they found that they weren't, didn't have to work so hard because, um, you know, I would write Ruby with Stacia in mind and Stacia's rhythms. And so, I, you know, when she struggled, I say, you know, just, just be yourself. It's you. It's kind of you. I, I was thinking of you and how you are the most grounded character in the play. You've already had, as Ruby, your grief. And so bring Stacia's own groundedness uh, around grief and sadness uh, into that. And she did, and she brought it beautifully. Um, but, uh, but I have been really uh, in awe of the, uh, and, and wonder at, at how beautiful uh, the staging has happened uh, uh, around my words. And uh, and they they did it. They've executed everything that I that I wanted, uh, and and showed me some things that I thought, hmm, you know what? I'm going to write that into the play. So I'll say, what was it you said? What were those lines? And then I'll, I'll rewrite them so that they're mine. Um, but I love the 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 improv work that they do has given me a lot of information that is that is now either written into the play or has become the subtext of the play. Uh, because a lot of these actors have have been with this project since 2019, they've seen many drafts of this play. I maybe six or seven. I don't know now. Um, usually I do more, but maybe it's even less. Um, but they've uh, maybe five. I maybe I think I've done I've done five separate drafts of this play. Usually I do like ten, and uh, I'm learning some things about that. Um, but it, there's some material that ends up get, uh, getting dropped in some drafts from the previous draft. Uh, and then they, they ask themselves, hey, didn't I do, wasn't that, isn't this part of this story? And I go, well, not anymore, but you know what? You can use it as subtext. And it, it does become the subtext. They don't forget that. They don't forget those earlier drafts. So it's still in them. Uh, it's, that's what's wonderful. But the thing, Jose, that I found really interesting is how, uh, um, because I sometimes don't trust myself enough, uh, I, I want to just tinker with the play because I have time. I want to rewrite more, rewrite more in, in the process, in the room. I had a dramaturg who uh, made it her task to protect the play from the playwright. <laughs> <laughs> and she was terrific. She brought so much of her own wisdom to the script saying, no, it works, trust it, it works. You've got, you nailed this about our culture, about our people, trust it, it's there and and uh, and you don't have to mess with it. Uh, and, and at some point also the actors would do that. I, I'd say, oh, you know, you, the way you said that line was better than what I wrote. So I wonder if you could say that. And they would say, wait, 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 wait. Your language is so beautiful. Give me a chance to memorize it right and then decide because I can give me a chance to make your language work. 
Um, and uh, and so they they also protected the play from my from me. Um, and that that was that was one of the big learning experiences uh, for me as a playwright is how they uh, how I, I need to trust myself more because these actors and the director innately trusted my play innately they just automatically went oh yeah I get this um, and um, and I would second guess myself um, and I think part of that is also because of because it's my first new play since 2018 you know it's been some time and uh, and my confidence was shaken uh, because I thought it was you know finished as a playwright um, and uh, and it's what I do I don't write tv I don't write movies um, I, I don't do fiction I don't write poetry it's I'm a playwright um, and it, and my confidence was deeply shaken I, I questioned my identity as a as a person, because I, I uh, mistakenly just saw myself mainly as Octavius Solis playwright instead of Octavius Solis husband, father, man, you know, son, and uh, and so I, I had a crisis of identity because of that, and uh, I, I I've learned to be better about that, more balanced. Um, so that's why I was probably kind of shaken and and, and wanted to really keep working on the play, trying to perfect it when, you know, it's it's doing its job rather well. What about Octavio, the short story and memoir writer? Because I love <laughs> Retablos so much. And although oh, yeah. I would want to ask you a lot of questions about Retablos, something that was my favorite thing in the in the whole book, because it resonated with me. And I'll tell you a short story so that you know where I'm going. Um, my dad growing up listened to her ballpark and he would bring him up constantly and up until i read the tablos i thought my dad carlos was the only person in the world who listened to her ballpark and i was like <laughs> oh no he exists beyond my dad's existence and <laughs> and in fact like one of my proudest uh moments as as, as a son was I was walking down the West Village once right in front of the IFC Center. And there was this man selling, you know, old records. And I found this record. And I remembered from when I was growing up, my dad describing a Herb Alpert album that his grandpa or his uh, uncle or someone in his family had that had Herb Alpert, I think, or someone on a plane in the cover. And then I saw that record there and obviously I bought it. Like I, it was like the uh, best dollar that I've spent in my life because then I brought it to my dad and he was so happy because he couldn't believe that I had found something that, <laughs> that was lost to him. So can you talk a little bit about Mr. Alpert in your uh, own life? Yeah, well, Retablos, my, my, uh, my sort of uh, creative nonfiction book on, on, on growing up in El Paso, uh, was it came out of the blue and uh, and I started remembering these stories, these little episodes, and I thought I should tell a story of my life. But you know, uh, I, I because I can't remember everything that happened in my life growing up. I can only remember episodes. I I thought tell my story in little short story forms, almost like little uh, one page, two page stories, and uh, and that worked. It worked for me, and I wrote them completely out of order. But I could not resist writing about uh, my my life with my my sort of uh, 
um, discovery really of, of, of my theatrical self through Her Herb Alpert albums. Uh, my mother had them all. And I think she got them from my grandmother. She had the, the Lonely Bull, um, Tijuana Taxi, the, the, of course, Whipped Cream and Other Delights, Casino Royale. He had he put out so many albums and they were all, you know, really top selling albums at the time. And I loved that sound. It was a beautiful, fully uh, um, fleshed out kind of uh, pop Latino sound that that was also uh, interpretations. It was uh, of American standards and and a lot of movie themes. Uh, and I just loved it. I, I don't know why. And also, I thought he was because he always showed him kind of dark skinned. I thought he was Mexican. I thought he was, you know, a Latino. So I, I, I he was kind of a hero to me. Uh, and I emulated him and I cut out a trumpet made from a from a cardboard lid of a shoebox and I colored it with crayon uh, or marker. I think it was uh, with all the staves and everything. And I would play that thing along with the albums. And my parents thought I was crazy. My brothers, my sisters thought I was crazy. Um, they didn't they couldn't relate to that. But I, it was my fantasy world. And I pretended I was Herb Alpert. It was kind of like <laughs> my first, I think I was 10 years old. I, it was my first acting experience. But it, <laughs> it was a fantasy that I was, that, that now I think is like really embarrassing. But at the time it was like, I don't care what anyone thought. This, this is, I emulated this guy. And it's only much, much later in my adult years that I realized that He's he's from Romania. He's of Romanian descent. He's Jewish, and uh, but he has supported a lot of musicians, to, uh, and and uh, through the years through A and M Records and through scholarships, actually. In fact, the uh, at Cal Arts, which uh, which commissioned my play, there's a whole music building that's named after him, the Herb Alpert Music Hall, and uh, or, or music building. Um, and uh, so he's contributed a lot and still does uh, to uh, the success of, of other artists. Um, so I still greatly admire him. I still think he's terrific. Um, but uh, but uh, as a kid, to know that there was someone like that, uh, even if I even if I completely missed it, even if I was wrong, it told me that that there's room for us. There's room for us in the world like that. Um, and then of course, later as I grew up, my heroes became Carlos Santana, you know, and, uh, uh, and Richie Valens, you know, and I discovered about him. And so, um, so it was, you know, um, I, couldn't, I couldn't not write about that because it was a way, it was my way into uh, the, the creative world into, and also into my love of music. It was almost like the very first kind of uh, aware the, the the very first awareness of of music that I had before I learned about the Beatles before I learned about the Rolling Stones and uh, you know Bob Dylan and all these cats uh, and uh, the Mamas and the Papas and Joni Mitchell I loved I loved all these artists but before them I was listening to Herb Alpert. Did you ever toy with the idea of becoming a musician? Yes, I have. I'm a frustrated musician. I, I, I even joined the band and, and I played cornet. I, I was because I was emulating him. I, I thought I wanted to be that. 
but I, uh, I, I did not want to wear my glasses. I, actually, I didn't wear glasses at the time. I didn't know I was really nearsighted. So I couldn't, I couldn't see the sheet music. It was way over here and I couldn't see it in front of me. So I would play like this, reading the sheet music with, on the side like this and blow the horn into the next guy's ear. And the teacher just said, you've got to get glasses. You need glasses. And I, uh, uh, and I didn't want to get them because I was a kid and I was very vain. Uh, so I quit the band. I quit, I quit band and uh, I sold the trumpet. Um, later on, I bought a guitar and I wanted to learn guitar uh, when I got my glasses, you know, and uh, I've tried other instruments. I, I, I taught myself how to play the saxophone, except I, I, I don't know really how to play music on it. I just I learned how to make sound come out that was beautiful, but it wasn't, you know, I couldn't play along with any, any anyone like that. It was fun, though. Uh, and uh, and I and I even have a guitar here that and I just am trying to learn teach myself through YouTube videos, things like that because I uh, I I love music so much and um, but the way in which I get to be a musician is by writing lyrics and plays. That's how I do it. I write. I know how to write lyrics that because uh, I hear the music in my head and so I'll write it to a certain way. And then I'll pass the music on to a composer and they'll do something beautiful, but I can take credit for it because it's my <laughs> lyrics and I had a hand in that. So it's about as close to a musician as I can come to, to be uh, a lyricist. And I love, I love uh, that collaboration. Um, I, I think that in some respects, I think that's why there's music in almost all of my plays. Uh, in this case, it's uh, all instrumental. But um, but in Quixote Nuevo, I uh, I wrote songs for that that uh, that Ed Robledo and and especially David Molina just turned into beautiful songs, beautiful music, and I hardly had to change a lyric in there at all. They would just say, "Can I repeat the line here?" And I go, "Yeah, yeah." So they just had so much fun writing to my lyrics, and and the songs are stunning. Uh, and they're not the only artists I've collaborated with. There's men, there are many more, uh, but in my most recent work, uh, Quixote Nuevo, it was it was so wonderful to hear the kind of music that they did, and and that I and I felt like that's about as close to being a musician as I could come. Mm. Uh, so, have you mastered any songs on the guitar yet? Like even something short? No, no, no. No, I think there was a Bob Dylan song that I learned the chords to, but I, I forgot them. Uh, I just haven't been practicing enough. It was, uh, I dreamed I saw St. Augustine uh, from uh, John Wesley Harden. It's a great album. It's a great song. Um, and uh, it was simple chords, so it was easy to, to sort of follow that. Um, but I have to, um, I, you know, I work on it for a while and then I'll lapse for about six months and I forget everything. And so I have to teach myself everything all over again you know <laughs> so going back to uh retablos and memories for a second i recently read an interview with um memorist mary carr and i'm paraphrasing her but she said something that really stuck with me and she said that when people ask her when they read her books when they read her books and they asked her how do you remember all, all of this and her response would be I don't, I just think I do. 
So <laughs> I wonder, <laughs> I wonder when, you know, when someone in your family or someone in your friends comes up to you and they're like, hey, Octavio, this ever happened or this didn't happen like this. <laughs> How do you deal with that? How do you navigate that? Uh, well, um, the same way a, 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 a fiction writer would. You, uh, I was more interested in telling a story than in remembering things accurately. Uh, and because everyone will have their own version of what happened uh, of a particular event or memory, uh, they, they will remember it a certain way. Um, we will never reach consensus. So I said, I have to trust my own memory on this. Because I, I know that there's a core event that really happened, and I know that so well. The stuff around the edges are a little fuzzy, and I give myself permission to, to bring other memories to fill, to fill those in, or, or I make it up because I need a little bridge to connect between one truth and another. Uh, I just make up a, a little thing. So I feel like it's uh, like it's, uh, I gave myself permission to do that, per permission to, uh, to uh, invent in order to get to a greater truth than just, you know, something that happened to me. Uh, there's, there's a story. I want to tell a story. Um, but all the events that happened, in, the main events that happened in, in, in Retablos are, are real. They did happen to me. I just, uh, gave, you know, they may not have all happened on the same day. I just brought them all together so that they would happen the same day in the same way that Shakespeare did that with... Uh, with his history plays, you know, he just took things that happened 10 years apart and he made them happen like one day or the next day. They made it all happen like very quickly when they took a lot longer for them to, to occur. Um, and so, uh, um, so that's interesting that Mary Carpano put it that way, because that's a really good thing. I think, I think I remember it this way. Uh, I, I think I remember. I think that's really, really, really cool uh, because it's applicable here. Um, and also, he, here's the thing, and, and I put this in, in the introduction to Retablos. Uh, every time we remember, we revisit a memory of something that happened, we remember it differently because of who we are at the time we're remembering. Uh, we never step into the same river twice. It's always a different river because the water's traveling, water's changing. So memory works that way. So we, 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 there's a patina of, of, of experience that, that we lay over that memory when we remember it. And if, if I go back to that memory 10 years later, it's gonna have another patina over it. Uh, and so it's, it changes. And every time I tell um, uh, an event uh, or I hear my parents tell a story that happened, I go, wow, that's not how I remember you telling it. You told me that this happened this way. And they went, no, no, it happened like this. I said, wow, you told it very differently. You know, when I was a kid, I remember you said this and, and they'll go, no, no. Um, so it's, uh, it happens to all of us. We remember our, our memories, don't change, we do, mm. we, we do. And so uh, that affects how we remember, you know? So although technically you're not a musician per se, 
if we thought of memories as notes and you're putting together all of these memories in a certain order, I think that kind of makes you like an arrangist, right? So that's kind of like being a musician. <laughs> yes, yes, and and uh, and truthfully, I, I I craft my words very carefully, both in retablos and in, in in my fiction and in my plays. I take great pains, uh, even though I let the characters talk and they talk how they talk, blah blah blah. I trust that language, uh, and it and it sometimes it's poetic and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's really profane. Uh, but then I'll I'll look at it and and then craft it so that it has a certain musicality to it so that it so that uh, so that it so that it fits in 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 the music of the piece even if the words are it's okay mija even the simple phrase like it's okay mija can have a certain uh, rhythm and and cadence that fits in the music of of the whole play it doesn't have to be you know grand poetry or beautiful lyricism. It can be a real common phrase that, if used right, has enough of that uh, uh, of that melody to carry the whole play, to carry to carry the events of the play forward. So, uh, I, but I do take that I do take great pains with with the language with how I hear it, and when I don't hear it right, I go, oh, oh, that's not that's not how I wrote it. That's not it. That's not that. the words are da 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 da. Um, but sometimes if an actor has been consistently saying the line wrong, I get used to it. And I don't realize he's saying it wrong until the stage manager corrects the actor and me. And said, they'll come to me and say, you know, you keep saying this. That's right, right? And I go, yeah. Go, no, that's not what you wrote, Octavio. This is what you wrote. And I go, oh. So I'll say, all right, we'll correct them. Uh, but sometimes I'll say, well, I like his line better. Let's change the one in on the script to reflect uh, what the actor's doing. Mm, oh. I love it. Uh, Octavio, has been a true pleasure talking to you. Would you like to invite our viewers and our listeners to come see your play? I encourage everyone in the LA area to please come see Scene with Cranes. It runs from September 29th through uh, the October 1st, September 29th, 30th, and, and, and the 1st uh, and uh, of October. And uh, it's only a three um, performance uh, run. There is an evening uh, live stream that happens at 8.30. I believe that's Saturday. You can get tickets uh, by going to the redcat.org uh, website. And Redcat stands for Roy and Edna Disney Cal Arts Theater. So if you go there, you can purchase tickets for, for the show. I'm very proud of it. And, uh, and uh, you'll see... Uh, Seen with cranes listed there. Okay. So uh, thank you very much, Jose. This has been such a pleasant experience. Really, really it's lovely interview. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor, and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There is enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.